You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson, and I'll be your host. And today I have the honor of talking to Kurt Jacobus, who is a med tech entrepreneur and investor in several different companies. And just to mention a few on the board of directors and chairman at Restore 3D, Huxley Medical, Impressio, Cadoxo. And those are just a, those are just some of the companies he's involved with. But most recently, and some of the things that we're going to focus on today is he was the CEO of MedShape, which you all know we, through the news, was just acquired by DJO. And so he has agreed to come on today and talk about the evolution of MedShape and the different things that occurred along the way. So this is a really exciting topic and look forward to it, especially coming off of ACVAS and some exciting things that were going on there as well. So without further ado, Kurt, how are you today? I'm good, Eric. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. Congratulations on your success with it. It seems to be going very well. Well, thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate it. And this podcast couldn't happen without people like yourself coming on. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And of course, as we talked about and everybody knows, obviously MedShape was just acquired and obviously exciting times for you guys. So I just kind of wanted to get your feel on a little bit. Well, I guess rewind a little bit. If we can just talk about the evolution of MedShape and where you started and where you got to. And I understand that could take a lot of time to elaborate on, but if you can give us a snapshot of what that looked like. Of course. Yeah. And it's not a short story. It's a bit complex, but I'll start with the end where we ultimately came to and then kind of work through some iterations that got us there. The business, you know, at its current embodiment is a foot and ankle implant business powered largely by nickel titanium technology. And we had a proprietary technology that made it easy to machine and manufacture nickel titanium parts. And that allowed us to do some pretty complicated things with nitinol that hadn't been done before. For example, we put nitinol inside an intermedullary nail, and that was sort of the product that really developed our business. It created excellent clinical outcomes that we demonstrated through clinical studies and helped us develop the business. And ultimately, it was a large part of why we believe DGO was interested in the business. You know, and that's a pretty you know, sort of concentrated, focused business in the strategy we were employing all the way up through the acquisition, which you know, the ink still kind of wet on the agreement we closed just about a month ago, was a strategy that generally said that we believe that orthopedic fixation and orthopedic joint fusion would be better served by dynamic devices that can provide sustained compression instead of the plates and screws that have been in use, believe it or not, since so shortly after the you know, Civil War in the U.S., right? And that, I think, strategy continues to have a lot of legs, and we've seen this kind of switch going along. But that's kind of the, you know, the, the version of, of MedShape that we sold. When we founded the business, it emerged out of University Lab, and there are two technologies. And the, one of those technologies was shape memory alloys, particularly this proprietary nickel titanium. But the other was a shape memory polymer. And the shape memory polymer could kind of change shapes inside the body or during implantation. And, and it was unclear to us, you know, which was sort of the better technical bet, either in terms of clearance or product development or clinical outcomes. And so we developed both of them. 
what we discovered, you know, kind of early on is that the shape-merry polymer is better suited to sort of sports medicine applications, particularly soft tissue fixation like you'd see in an ACL or in a rotator cuff or labrum or, you know, any of the procedures you do in foot and ankle. And the nickel titanium was better suited, of course, to bony fusion and fracture fixation. And that meant we started developing two channels in parallel, which I would not recommend <laughs> to anyone that's trying to do a startup. It's hard enough to develop one sales channel and two is a very difficult task. And that meant we were sort of subcritical in terms of, you know, investment bandwidth, but also in terms of, you know, market focus. And that had us ultimately decide to spin off the sports medicine business. And that was bought by ConMed in 2017. You know, and that provided a real bonus for us in the sense that we, and, you know, overnight had focus, Eric, but we also had a, a big chunk of capital we could deploy in foot and ankle. And that's what kind of really fueled our growth the last four years. Well, and in, yes, I, from afar, obviously could see your momentum as you, when the, in the last, as you mentioned, four years of just incredible growth. And I would have to say, and I was going to ask you this question, I guess you were some of the original thought leaders in night and all technology, because up until obviously the, the dining nail and other things like that, you didn't see night and all that, that often in the medical device world. That's fair to say. And I think you've had my business partner on Ken Gall, who's you know, now on the faculty of Duke. He and I in grad school worked on shape memory alloys. So, you know, sort of a fun little fact, I did a master's on shape memory alloys, both nickel titanium and some other systems. And Ken continued that work in his PhD. And so you know, we learned a lot about these materials at their most basic level. You know, and what we discovered, you know, later, not while we were in school together, but, you know, kind of when we got into the business was nickel titanium had not been fully exploited. It had been used in cardiovascular applications, vena cava filters. There were some stent applications that were done. But no one had really done much in orthopedics other than very crude staples that were sort of like bent wires for the most part. And so we began to feel like there was a real opportunity to do something there. And and that is the path that we ultimately took the business on. We had success with the Shape Murray Polymers also and made some very good products out of them. But we just always felt, not always, but in the later days, felt that nickel titanium had a lot more kind of technical bang for the buck, clinical bang for the buck, and still feel that way. Well, thank you for that. And that that's an interesting how that evolved and, and where we are now and the proliferation of it in all in quite a few devices in orthopedics. Well, you had mentioned as, as we kind of flip over to, you know, talking about you the structure of your organization and how you 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 attacked it. Can you talk about the early days of what it looked like as far as, as your sales channel and how that evolved? Of course, yeah. And and the early products that we released were products directed at soft tissue fixation. So suture anchoring product and then a ACL fixation product. And that meant that our you know, sales channel was independent, you know, as you might expect, and one that was more sports oriented than foot and ankle oriented. And I didn't come from the industry. Most of the folks that we had brought in did not come from the industry, you know, and, and we ultimately want to bring in some folks that had some experience in the industry. But, you know, it, it was still difficult. And I think it's difficult today to find good independent distribution in sports medicine. You know, it's a pretty concentrated market and it's a tough market to make money in just because the KCSPs are low. 
And so that meant we pretty we had a pretty ragtag group of initial distributors. You know, they were working hard. It's just hard for them to make money with the small bag that we had and in that you know, very competitive sports medicine space. And so what we wound up doing then was beginning to kind of expand our internal sales team to kind of sell over the top of independence, but also to do some direct work to kind of drive sales in the near term. And that was a workable solution for a while. When we got into foot and ankle, particularly with Dynanail, then we saw an opportunity to really put on some focused independence and get growth. But the early days, you know, sports, you know, sports will put hair on your chest, Eric. It is a tough tough market for a startup, right? And that, it was no different for us. It was difficult. But certainly, when we got into foot and ankle with Dynanile, things became much, much easier. And part of it was you know, that product was more differentiated than the soft tissue products we put out in sports. Well, I can completely agree with you. When you do look at the sports market, sports medicine market, and you have the behemoths of Arthrex and Depew Synthes, Smith & Nephew, I mean, they're, they're dedicated sales channels, direct sales channels. And they make sure that no case goes uncovered. That's a tough nut to crack. Uh, agreed. It is certainly a, a difficult one. And, and they all have very broad product lines. And so trying to come in and you know, carve off a category is hard to do, right? Because it's hard to find the accounts that actually care about the different ways in which you're going to address that category. And yeah, it was a difficult path. You would be hard pressed to convince me with any amount of capital in any, you know, highly differentiated product to, you know, sort of wander, you know, casually into the sports medicine marketplace in its current embodiment. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And to that, and kind of go into your growth and the way you evolved as an organization, as you started to introduce new products, was it always something in your mind that you thought it'd be something where the business would be acquired? Or was this just an organically it occurred. What was your strategy? And you don't have to go too deep. I understand you probably can't do that, but just your your thoughts. And if that changed throughout the process. Of course, I'm an open book, Eric. I think you know that. And so I'm happy to share, you know, whatever I can share. But ultimately, you know, when we started the business, the mindset that we took and we operated the business and any of the things that you know, I've been centrally involved in in the following way, you take investors' money, you do over-summarize and have to offer them a return. But when we you know, take investments, we say to investors, you know, be prepared for what may be a long ride because we don't want to spend the day-to-day operating the business thinking about an exit. We find that to be corrosive thinking, right? Because it has you focused on things that might be window dressing, things that might be short-term, and things that take you away in some cases from what I think the reasons are for starting a medical device business, and that's to improve human health and improve the human condition, right? And so that meant our strategy was always around developing new products that could improve patient outcomes and then spending a inordinate amount of time, energy, and money on putting together clinical studies to demonstrate that, right? And we felt like doing that meant, you know, every day we were advancing the world we lived in and advancing our business and with that, an, an exit would come. But you know, let me say this also, you know, with respect to kind of back office activities, we certainly ran the business in, in a way that if anyone came in at any point and said, we want to learn more about the business, and we want to enter into diligence, that the business was put together in a way that it would sell through diligence, right? And that was kind of the, 
the model that we use, which meant, you know, for the back office folks, the folks in the finance off, you know, finance function, the folks in quality and regulatory and engineering, that there was an expectation that things would be in excellent condition. And, you know, that meant we didn't talk about exits a lot, but we were ready for one when the time came about. Well, it's very interesting that you just said that and and talked about, quote unquote, corrosive thinking, because I encounter several startup organizations and I, whether I talk to them on podcasts or, or in other ways. And I'm always struck by sometimes that they, I'll sit down with someone and talk to them and man, they have a defined exit strategy and they tell you right up front. And that's an interesting premise. And, and, and I hope it does work for them. I, I will add that caveat that a lot of those organizations have not been acquired yet. So I wonder it's kind of just, it's just interesting. And I, and I can appreciate that because obviously, like you said, you're, your number one goal is patient care. So just interesting little anecdotal thought there. So you obviously DJO came, did their diligence and made the acquisition, you know, where obviously they were very happy to have you be a part of the DGO team. How do you see, has it gone the way you were looking at it to go? How, how's it gone? You know, it's still early days in the spirit of full disclosure. I'm only a consultant to the business now. I did not retain a management position with the company post-close. But ultimately, if you look at the transaction, it makes a huge amount of sense for DGO, right? They are focused very much on putting together an advantage technologies supporting them with clinical data. And, and the best example would be their total shoulder, which they are taking a lot of share with. And we're a very good fit for that. They also like the extremity markets, foot and ankle and upper extremity. And our business is, of course, a foot and ankle business, but the technology has a lot of leverage in upper extremity. And they're investing heavily in R&D and clinical studies, right? And so, you know, on paper, I think is an excellent fit. You know, it is, is always the case, you know, under new management, you know, people and things change, you know, I think is thus far in the one month and what I'm familiar with, things have been going very well. And I expect that to continue. You know, they have a nice business. Our business, you know, I'm biased, but I think is a very attractive business and, and has a lot of strategic, you know, and, and it's a, a very strong future ahead of it. You know, a combination with total ankle and with you know, some plates and screws to kind of touch more procedures and have a fuller bag, I think is a strategy that will benefit them going forward. Well, I definitely agree with you on that. And when you look at the extremities market, in general, just overall, it's, you know, whether whatever source you're looking at, you're looking at anywhere between 10 to 14% growth, whereas other subspecialties of orthopedics are all low single digits. So it's it's an attractive space to be in for sure. Yeah, that's certainly a piece of it. And it's very fragmented still, right? You know, it's not like you know, TKA or, you know, hips, right? Or it's fine, still very fragmented, but you know, it, it's, you've got to go pick up their nickels. You know, these are small procedures with, you know, small total market sizes, but if you go pick up enough nickels, you can have a very nice, you know, business, right? And that tends to keep the big competition out because when they sit in product development, you know, they're not going to want to go chase down a product for subtail or fusion, you know, that might be in a $40 million market, right? That's not going to get them excited about it. And that sort of keeps the big money out. Definitely. And yeah, and I, I can remember back how many ever years years ago it was where it definitely there was a dramatic shift within the I call them quote unquote the big ortho companies where exactly what you said, their R and D changed to much more of a M and A structure where they were looking to 
acquire technologies instead of develop them in-house. Just a question for you. Do you feel that's still that way today, that they're more acquisitive with respect to R&D than organic? Or do you feel like it's kind of been status quo for 10 years? I think it's been status quo for 10 years. I have a lot of friends who are in R&D in those larger orthopedic companies. They do have active projects, not like it was in the beginning, but it seems to be the focus is changing slightly. I think that they are trying to develop some of these new technologies in-house. I've noticed that Synthes has you know, developed some new things that they've come out with in, that in respect to trauma. So to answer your question, and probably I'm being a little vague, is it, it's status quo, but I think that's going to have to change as, you know, are there the technologies that they want to acquire? You know, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's been, you know, you've been in orthopedics, I think a stretch longer than I have, but, you know, 15 years ago, you had, you know, Depew and Synthes, right? And operating independently and Zimmer and Biomat operating independently and Tournier and Right and Striker operating independently, right? And either, you know, even some smaller players like Arthur Care. And, yeah, there's been so much concentration now. And these balance sheets have gotten huge, right? I mean, Striker balance sheet's what, 50 billion, right? And I think when you get into that, you know, environment, you wind up appropriately protecting your own balance sheet, right? And new product introductions feel risky, right? And, you know, I think that tends to slow things down. I think that puts a lot of hand, a lot of power in the hands of, you know, your attorneys at your company and whoever's running quality and reg. And that can slow down innovation. In my view, it doesn't have to, but can slow it down. And so I, I do think there's been, you know, more limited product introduction, new product introduction out of the big companies than I would have expected. But you know, they're being rewarded in the public markets for that anyway, Eric, right? So why take the risk, right? If you look at the multiples that you know, sort of the big four, or big five ortho, depending on how you look at it, are trading at, they've all been showing relatively low single-digit growth, sub-GDP growth in some cases, and certainly sub-market growth, but have been rewarded in the public market. So why change the script? Why take a risk? Why develop a new product or do something that's a step out when just doing what you've been doing is doing for your stock what you want it to do. Totally agree with you. And I think, like you said, their balance sheets, if you look at some of these large ortho companies, how much cash they have these days, it is, it's mind boggling. And so again, I'll echo exactly what you said. It's, it's, they are kind of, the stock price has been fantastic for them. And so they, you know, it stays where they, you know, their investors want it to be. And so I don't think that there is, you know, the incentive to change. Obviously, everything changes. So we'll see what happens in the future. And obviously, the price pressure is going to be there. But I think I've been saying that for 10 years. And I <laughs> that doesn't seem to change their organizations. But I guess yeah. we'll, we'll soon find out. Yeah, it has, you know, it's also been interesting, right? There's some pure plays that have IPO'd in the last decade, you know, one that IPO'd in the last six months, three months, you know, and some others that have, you know, are, are going down a SPAC route or have gone down a SPAC route. And, you know, those are trading at extraordinary multiples. And, you know, tip of the cap to their management teams and their investors, that is a very good thing, I think. And what it says to me is the institutional investors that have enjoyed the kind of slow, stable ride of, you know, big ortho are probably going to stay there for a while. But there is a class of institutional investors that want high growth, innovative, 
clinically differentiated ortho, right? And that's a good thing, right? The public markets want those things. And, you know, the one thing I can tell you, we've the good fortune of selling four businesses in this space over the last decade. You know, the, and a very wise guy that invested in one of our companies said this to me and it stuck with me. You know, companies in this space are bought, they're not sold, Eric. And, and so, you know, you, you could go out and hire every banker under the sun and go out and run a process. That doesn't mean that any of the four or five folks that can afford to buy you are going to buy you, right? It, it doesn't mean that at all. But the thing about a healthy IPO and SPAC market does provide much more opportunity for you to do it on your own time time frame and to have less expensive public capital there to f- fuel your growth and your continued competition with the bigger providers, right? And so it's an interesting time of the market. I would say, you know, to anyone that's kind of sitting on the sideline with a good idea and a good team, a good set of, you know, engaged clinicians, probably no better time to to get into orthopedic device than right now. Well, thank you. That that is great advice. And and you you had mentioned SPACs and and obviously probably three or four years ago, somebody would be like, What are you talking about? But when you go and analyze these SPACs that have that have come about here in the last Geez, 12 to 18 months. It's very interesting to see who's on their management teams. It's interesting to see who is the investors in these. So it, it's from afar, I'm watching these SPACs and see exactly how that's going to, will those SPACs cause a, and I don't want to say feeding frenzy, but will there be competition? You know, will it cause prices of these organizations to change? I, I don't know. Just kind of curious. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think... Yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, and I and I say that because there was kind of you know, SPAC 1.0, which I'll get the dates slightly wrong, but it's probably a decade ago. A lot of things were SPAC'd, and then all wound up just being you know really poor businesses that had no business being publicly traded, and you know so people threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and and said SPACs are bad instead of the wrong businesses were SPAC'd, right or despacked is probably the right way to phrase that. But ultimately, you know, I think there is an opportunity for this to really help many markets, including orthopedics, right? It's a somewhat simplified, it's not, you know, not the simplest process in the world, but somewhat simplified process relative to an IPO. And the thing that's actually, you know, I think helps you recruit institutional investors is unlike an IPO, you can go out and talk about the future prospects of the business. And you can share forward projections, right? And you can't do that with an IPO, right? And that can help certainly recruit a different class of investors than an IPO might. And, you know, and I think honestly, it, it can keep the strategics honest, right? And that's a good thing, right? So the big, you know, the big strategic players, you know, they're looking for a trade sale and want to pick up something at, you know, five times sales. Well, the public markets are going to offer you 10, 12, 25 times sales, that money's every bit as green as the money you're going to get from a strategic. Why wouldn't you do that? So I think it's a great thing for our space. I just hope it's durable like you do, Eric, that folks can find a SPAC exit and an IPO exit and have that be durably meaningful to both the founding and early shareholders as well as the later institutional publicly traded or you know, public shareholders. Well, thank you for that feedback. That's very interesting. It, it, it's going to be exciting to watch because I think that just exactly like you said, having more opportunities and having more people 
actively involved in possibly acquiring an organization. I think that's a good thing. Well, so thank you again for all, you know, talking about, about MedShape and, and obviously you've had a lot of experience with other businesses that you've sold. What's, what's in the future? What do the cards hold for Kurt? I'm taking a little time off right now, Eric, you know, and, and finding it more difficult to relax than I, I would have imagined. I think I, I, I like to work. I'm still a young fellow. I'm 50. So I, I don't think it's time to pick up a golf game or, or something of that nature. I got some involvement in a number of startups and you mentioned some of them at the top of the podcast. And yeah, I'm doing some, you know, informal project work with them, but it would not surprise me if I got involved with one or more of those in a more formal way, you know, just we need for the timing to be right, you know, need to look at the business and know that I can be helpful to the business and need the business to look at me and say, we need your help. Right. And and that's sort of the basis for doing some work going forward. But it would not surprise me if in the next, you know, six, three to six months that, you know, I land somewhere and continue to do similar things to what I've been doing for the last 15 years. I've really enjoyed it. You know, it's honest work, you know, it'll keep you, it'll keep you, keep you on your toes, but I've really enjoyed it. And the thing I'm proudest of, two things I'm proudest of, are we've done a lot to improve human health in our businesses over the year. That feels great. We've also brought along a bunch of young people, you know, both you know, new hires, but we've run a very active intern and co-op program. And many of those people have learned, I, th- I think, learned a lot in working with us and gone on to do great things and are sort of spread across the industry. And, you know, it might surprise you that over the course of MedShape's history, we had a 120 intern and co-op students and, you know, they're all over ortho and device, right? And I'm hoping that the experiences we gave them make them every bit as successful as they want to be there. So those are the things that I like about it. And I think if I were to not be exposed to those, Eric, I think I'd be a less happy person than I am when I'm doing it. Well, thank you for that. And that is a huge accomplishment to have that many co-op people that have come through your 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 business and out in the out into other organizations across the country. And and I know several of those people. So you've had quite a few wonderful people come through your organization uh, and that's a tribute to everyone at MedShape. Thank you. Sure. And well, and again, I I just wanted to say thank you for taking your time. This has been fantastic. Our audience is going to be really excited to to tune in and listen to this valuable information and share your your journey with MedShape. And I would imagine we'll probably be seeing you sooner than later, jumping into something else. And maybe when that happens, you can come back on again. I would enjoy that, Eric. Thank you again. It's a real pleasure to spend some time with you here today. And congrats again on the continued success of the podcast. And I'm certain our paths will cross relatively soon. I am sure of it, Kurt. And again, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. And have yourself a a good day. I'm sure you can probably maybe hit the golf course tomorrow or something. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Eric. You too. Thanks, Kurt. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.